This is Mental, the podcast that destigmatizes mental health. I'm Bobby Temps. I'm Annie Harris. Each Thursday, we delve into a factor or condition that influences the mind and how to better manage it. With special guests and stats you can trust, here we go. This week, we're talking all about immigration as a factor in mental health. But before we get into that, I just wanted to pause for a moment to talk about the fact that there was no episode last week. So as you may have seen from our Twitter, I was off with flu and it was quite bad and I lost my voice for a few days. So that's pretty podcast no-go-ish, but I'm feeling a lot better now. So we are back into recording. We're back on track. And as something special to thank you for your patience, we're having a bonus episode this week. So in addition to this episode, also on the same day, we'll be releasing an episode with previous guest Suki. Her episode was really popular, the one on burnout. And so we're releasing a bonus episode with her this time on exercise. So if you check out your podcast feed, that should be live at the same time as this episode. I think that's all I wanted to say on that. I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to be healthy. I was saying to Annie off air, whenever I do get ill, it always makes me so grateful for my health. The fact that I can, you know, swallow without pain and uh, breathe like a normal human and not sound like Darth Vader. It's things I appreciate. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, honey. Um, But yeah, I just wanted to check in with it because I think a big part of the reason why I had to take off a whole week was that I'd been working so hard and uh, it's kind of ironic that I mentioned a burnout episode because that was definitely a factor that I worked (laughs) super solidly the previous week pulling a lot of different projects together and then I actually did a recording when my flu had started and my throat was making like weird gargly noises that (laughs) preempted obviously me losing my voice so Yeah, so if you hear any weird throat noises in upcoming episodes, they'll be the ones that Pete didn't manage to uh, vanquish. (laughs) (laughs) Pete being our producer, you don't know. So while we're on the subject of me practicing what I preach and actually taking some time for self-care when I had to, how are you, Annie? How are you feeling? Good question. I have had a permanent twitch in my right lower eyelid for about a week because some of our listeners may not know, but I live in Brighton and Brighton Fringe is now upon us. Um, My show starts a week today and I am really tired, even though I'm not away from home or in a new city like I often am when I'm at Edinburgh Fringe doing comedy. I'm just in my normal house with my fiance and everything's very normal, but something about this month just feels super exhausting. So I've just got back from teaching singing. I teach singing to teenagers and and kids and I am gonna have a super early night after this because I think that eye is telling me that I've reached my limit <laughs> uh, the eye is warning me that I'm running low on petrol or fuel or whatever when you're calling it gas boot beans juice whatever you want it your sass your mojo I'm running beans. low on sass my sassometer is is depleted, so I'm going to, after we record today, I'm going to wrap myself up in bed with some chilli, or ve- uh, vegetarian chilli, and go to bed. Good. And that's exactly what you should do. Like, note to the listeners, 
follow Annie in this particular occasion and don't continue yeah. working until you get ill enough to force you to stop. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it's physical health or mental health, that is a poor strategy and one that this time caught me out. So I'm working to do better on that, but we're we're all we're human. human yeah. yeah. And we care a lot about the projects we're working on, which is just as well being self-employed. <laughs> no one's <laughs> going to care about them as much as we will. Nope, 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 nope. So that's that little preamble. So now we'll get into a little bit more about this episode. So this is a topic that is really close to home for me, one that I really wanted to cover. And I'm so delighted to have got on the guests that we got. We'll come back to talking about her shortly. But to start off with, I think a lot of the issues around integration when it comes to immigration and people, you know, settling and having as easy a transition as you can have when you're moving your whole life to a different country can come down to understanding, you know, how how much you understand about the process, how much other people that are already living locally are able to accept and embrace you and your cultural differences and understanding from healthcare professionals and people that would be involved should your mental health slide. So I just wanted to start off with a few definitions. Apologies if you already know them. So first off, these are all from the Cambridge English Dictionary. Why can I never say Cambridge? <laughs> I'm just not smart enough for that place. <laughs> all right. From that said dictionary, these are the <laughs> definitions. <laughs> for immigration, the act of someone coming to live in a different country, not to be confused with emigration, the process of leaving a country in order to live permanently in another country, so the opposite really of immigration, and also migration, movement from one region to another and often back again. Hopefully that all makes sense. So that's those that will obviously, those terms will come up a lot in the episode. Annie, did you have anything you wanted to say on all of that so far? It's a really tricky subject and I feel like you're handling it really well. So in terms of research into this, it was quite a difficult one to research. A lot of the statistics out there are quite limited. All the statistics vary a lot, but overall there just isn't enough research what research there is tends to be more so looking at people who are refugees. So there's parallels there, but it's quite a different yeah. situation when someone Where's is... Where's the grey area between people who were born in a country and people who had to seek refuge in a country because of something traumatic? Where's just the people who've moved from one country to another for a perfectly, perhaps not comfortable reason, but not as traumatic as, uh, you know, escaping war, you know, seeking asylum, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Some good news from the research is although it was quite lacking in areas, there is a decent buy-in from the UK government on this, this link, immigration, um, migration in general and mental health. They put together a report called Advice and Guidance on the Health Needs of Migrant Patients for Healthcare Practitioners. And I'm just going to read a little bit from that. Although most migrants will not suffer from mental health problems, some may be at increased risk as a result of their experiences prior, during or after migration to the UK. Issues such as homesickness, anxiety or sleep disorders may arise for anyone who is separated from family and friends or integrating into a new community or culture. 
So that's quite a general statement as part of their report on how this, this link shows and why healthcare practitioners in the UK need to be mindful of this potential factor in the needs of some of their patients. And they're not the only ones looking into this, but I'm just going to read one more passage from that as well. In addition to routine distress and anxiety, certain individuals, particularly those affected by emergencies, may experience elevated risk of mental disorders. And in this, when they refer to emergencies, they're talking about the kind of life-altering events that may cause someone to become a refugee. So whether it's war, whether it's natural disaster, whether it's threats to their their safety or their family's safety that have been brought about by something kind of sudden, unexpected, or to which they're unprotected from in their current country. In addition to the UK government, the World Health Organization has also produced guidance with advice on protecting and supporting the mental health and psychological well-being of refugees, asylum seekers and migrants in Europe. So they said as part of that, in responding to psychological and social distress amongst migrants, first acknowledge that the stress is a normal response in adults and children. It is very important to strengthen family and community support for the migration to help them integrate and cope with the stress factors. So of that, I don't find any of that particularly surprising. A lot of the things that are coming through are around how can we successfully help and facilitate people integrating into their new communities? How can we help support them through the natural disturbances to their their sleep and their emotions during what is a really difficult transitional time for anyone making such a big life move? I mean, even just when I go abroad, the time zone change can really affect my mood and and my mental health. Yeah, I was just going to say, I moved to Spain a few years ago for a job and I was there for nine months. And I remember the culture shock was really significant just when you were talking about things like even just going abroad and and experiencing change in time zones and a new culture and a different way of life and a different energy to a a city or a, a town that you're in can really affect you. So yeah, I think it's made me look at um, immigration and how mental health of people who have emigrated from a different country to a new one can be really affected by that. Yeah, I think there's a lot of factors that we talk about on the show, which we can take for granted, where I'll mention that I'm doing an episode into it to someone in my life, and they'll be like, oh, of course, yeah, that's massive. But yeah, a lot of these things aren't talked about. So I'm really glad to be covering something like this, particularly when there is real gaps in the research currently, despite it being quite an obvious link and the research so far showing there is a clear link that needs to be explored more. And so for contrast, I just wanted to give one more bit of background. And so this is a review from Queen's University Belfast called The Mental Health and Wellbeing of First Generation Migrants, a Systematic Narrative Review of Reviews. And just so we're clear, when it refers to first generation migrants, that means people that have been through that process of moving from one country to another themselves. If they were to then have children that were born and grew up in that country, they would then be referred to as second generation. And when people refer to like second generation immigrants, it's, a, it's exactly the same way of thinking. 
So I just wanted to highlight some results from this. Depression was mostly higher in first-generation migrants in general and in refugees slash asylum seekers when analysed separately. However, for all groups, there was a wide variation in prevalence rates from, of depression from 5 to 44%, compared with prevalence rates of 8 to 12% in the general population. With post-traumatic stress disorder, prevalence was higher for both the first-generation migrants and generally for refugees slash asylum seekers. And these rates range from 9 to 36% compared with the reported prevalence of 1 to 2% in the general population. So in general, what that's saying is that there was a really broad reporting of level of prevalence of both depression and PTSD in the studies that they found. However, the average of both was higher than that in the general population, more so when it came to PTSD, which is a condition often linked particularly to those that are refugees. Annie, anything you want to say at this point? No, you've been really thorough, as always. Like, you clearly just, you work so hard on these episodes, and every time I'm just like, nothing to add. Like, <laughs> anything is uh, is good at this point, but nope, drawing complete blanks. Sorry. Well, I'm, I'm delighted to have covered it, <laughs> and it's always Yay. good to have your feedback <laughs> well on there. Tick, tick, tick. So, yeah, this is an interview that I found really moving. I found it quite emotional to hear some of the discrimination that our guest Alex has been through and it made me upset but it also made me really glad to be covering this topic and hopefully not only will it explore the link between immigration and mental health but it will also shed a bit of light on the immigrant experience which is common and yet far too frequently misunderstood. So yeah, we'll get into the episode shortly. For a bit of background on our guest, Alex, I met through Birmingham Mind, where I do a lot of work, uh, particularly with the Time to Change hub that we're launching there. And so she really understood the ins and outs of that organisation. We really got to know each other well. So it's great to have someone on the show who I've met so organically and really got to know through my mental health campaigning. She's such a delight. She always has a smile on her face to everyone she greeted at Birmingham Mind. And it's just a gem of a human. So I hope you enjoy the episode. We'll get into it in a moment. But first, who's our sponsor? Let's find out. My name's Alex Wiatrowska, uh, and I was born in Poland in a small town in the southeast of it. No one ever knows where it is because it is quite small, so I won't even bother saying the, the actual No, go on, you never place. know, we might have a listener there. Okay. <laughs> I grew up there, I didn't really know any different. I went to school there, I did swimming. I was actually part of a, a swimming team. Um, we trained twice a day at one point so we had to have an amended timetable at school so I went swimming first thing in the morning then I went to school with everyone else then a coach would take us back to the swimming baths and then we'd have another training session 
go home, do my homework, go to sleep, do competitions on the weekend. It's quite intense. So not your usual childhood, but I guess in many respects it was. And then after I got into swimming, it wasn't because of the intensity of what, of the physical activity that was involved in. And then sort of around the age of eight and 10, my parents left to come and live here. And I stayed with my grandparents and eventually joined my parents when I was 10. My parents didn't really know which school they were going to sign me up to. They didn't really know anything about life here outside of what they were doing at the time at work. And where was it they settled in the UK? It was it was actually in West Brom, so okay. not too far from here. So when I moved over, it was the first time I ever lived in a house because before that when I was when I was still in Poland, we'd always only ever lived in flats. So when I moved over, it was my first time living in the house. So it was really exciting, as you can imagine, mm-hmm. the garden, you know, and, you know, a flight of stairs. I've never had a flight of stairs before <laughs> all to myself. To run up and down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I'd never had a pet before and we got a cat, so it was lovely. But I moved over not having the best knowledge of the language. Um, so I did know I'd learned at school. So I remember knowing that rock meant rock <laughs> and that kind of thing, you know. So it was very isolating come to a new country so you knew kind of parts of the language but not how to string them together well essentially yeah so as much as you'd expect yourself to say you know i i knew bits of uh, say french or spanish when i did them at school saying most people most mm-hmm. people will have done those two languages i for me it was english um we did that as, as a foreign language at school but um yeah so i, I had no i didn't really know how to interact with people naturally because I couldn't I didn't, yeah, you didn't, I didn't have, have the, the resources I didn't have any had. of the tools right but because I was 10 I didn't know that that was a big deal it didn't occur to me that it was anything to worry about mm-hmm. I came over I went to school it was a little bit scary because obviously I couldn't talk with the other kids I didn't really want to speak with the other Polish children either just because the community seemed so weirdly isolated from the rest of the school that I felt I didn't want to just stay with those kids. I wanted to be a part of all of it. So for the first two months, I just obviously tried to pick up as much of the language as I possibly could and tried to navigate my way around the new school. And at the time, it didn't seem like that much of an issue to me because it, well, came to me naturally sort of like osmosis um i i was there things went into my head um i learned them i started using them i started seeing um this new person form around the new language that i was learning and it was looking looking back actually on that experience it's almost like seeing yourself learn a language as a baby those same patterns forming because i didn't have to sit down and translate the same way someone does when they learn a language as an adult I didn't sit there and try to learn you were um, just learning it exactly I was just kind of learning it just as a toddler would do just trying to pick out the patterns and string them together and see see what forms around that and basically trying to shape my personality around the new things that I was learning Mm. and I think that's really the best way I think there's only so far you can get understanding 
a different language without living amongst it. I find I'm way better at French when I'm in France yeah. and I'm pretty useless at it in any other country. No, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I went on to do languages at uni as well, so it absolutely makes sense to me what you just said about you have to live there to kind of really experience it. For me at the time, obviously, it was out of necessity that I had to learn it. When you learn languages as an adult, it's a self-imposed process that you kind of relish mm. more than obviously having to learn the language out of necessity. And you're doing it out of pleasure as opposed to something that was imposed on you when you were younger and you kind of had just, just had to make it a part of your experience. Yeah, to survive, really. To survive, essentially, yeah. And I'm interested with you moving here at such a young age, to what extent did you understand that this was your new home? What what exactly did your parents tell you about the move and the reason for it? Oh, I think it's a very subjective thing because obviously my experience with that will have been completely different to, um, say, a refugee's or anyone else's for that matter. I feel like even my parents' own reasoning for it will have been different to how I saw it at the time and actually how I see it still. I don't think that what they might have told me made sense to me at the time. I don't think looking back, I considered what they told me mattered all that much. Mm. I just, I did what children do, which is just move forward. And I, I think I was pretty resilient as a child. Um, so I just kind of went with it. Well, I literally went with the flow um, right. and let that new world shape around me. And that makes sense. And that's really a big part of parenting. You're kind of creating the boundaries for your child. You yeah. know, that the rules become the walls of that young person's life. And so they've they've told you that we're moving and that's just that's what just you what know happened. and you get on with that. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I think that's very common. Yeah, and I think um, obviously that wasn't the case for some of... I don't think that was the case for some of my peers. I don't think some of the other kids dealt with it in the same way. They obviously integrated a lot more into the uh, sort of already established community and sort of segregated themselves around those identities that they wanted to cling on to. Whereas, like I said, try to integrate into all of it as opposed to trying to stay within that one box of this is what I know, this is what I should stick to. And I think a lot, obviously a lot of other people might have found it harder than I did trying to push out of that box. I'm not saying this in a self-congratulatory <laughs> kind of way, just, in, just this is exactly what I, what I said about the whole idea of obviously how mental health and how personality development is impacted by immigration. Everyone will have dealt with it on such different levels in so many different ways just the same way we do with all the other experiences that happen to us and that we have to stumble our way through, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it does sound like you had certain advantages because whilst there is a, a sort of universal element of immigration where you have to figure out where you are between these two cultures yeah. to what extent you are or can even integrate into your new surroundings versus the kind of pull of home and your own family and mm -hmm. where you fit between your peers and your family potentially being completely different yeah. and even speaking a different language so with you it sounds like you had quite an advantage potentially from the work ethic you'd already built up. You know, you were working so hard at your swimming and competing in it around already a full 
school schedule yeah. and so it, it seems then coming into this new environment and having to learn a whole new skill set in a new language was sort of more of the the work the ethic you'd already had that's right yeah yeah I think that's that's a, a huge huge part of it actually so I think in that respect I got very lucky just because yeah like you said I had that as an advantage but I, I think looking back on it actually it does mean that I was a little bit too stubborn in the way I tried to interpret myself at the time. I don't think that I think of myself as any particular nationality. I like to think of myself as British, Mm -hmm. whereas a lot of people don't see me as such still. So like I was saying, I moved over and I had to cruise through school and trying to navigate essentially a whole new way of being obviously having to contend with you know my old identity and trying to make sure that I was still my parents daughter and as well as just trying to fit into the new environment and trying to find balance between those two worlds which were so completely disparate from each other and I think still are and even outside of the whole idea of this being obviously a lot more amplified for migrants. I think everyone experiences that, don't they? They, That shift between we are not our parents or we are not our families, essentially. We we are a part of them, but actually the, the people that we grow into in society actually vary a lot from what we feel we can be with our families at home. And we aren't often comfortable with how we are with our old selves and how people see us from a young age to to the people that we actually grow into. Right. Um, Yeah, it's quite a fundamental part of growing up. It is, absolutely, because they see that part of you that they nurtured. In my case, it was for the first 10 years of my life. And then that new persona that grew into the Alex that I am now. And it's so difficult for, I think, migrant families especially to accept these new personas because they are essentially unrelated to what the old person was. I think they're more prone to clinging on to you as a child because it was the you that they knew before you changed and before you actually developed a whole new personality and a whole new language that they often don't understand to the same extent sometimes parents do mine mine do when they don't you know they they understand it they don't feel comfortable they don't feel at home in it the way I do and I think that that makes that really amplifies the distance between me and my parents because I feel now that I am more the person that I am in English I, than, I get what you mean. Than, than the person that they know in Polish for the first 10 years of my life and yeah. it's it's just such a huge leap for them to because it's not just the leap between you as a child and you as an adult it's even more difficult when you are literally a new person new language and a new new culture and they've they've not just got the age difference and the old you and the new you can to contend with they literally have a whole new culture to contend with as well and the fact that they don't fit into that in the same way that you do and I think for parents, it can be so isolating, as well as for the children, because there is that whole new world to navigate between them. There's just there's this distance that, that, that can never really be bridged, because they can just peer over onto your new 
life, but they can't ever participate in it the same way that parents who share a culture with their child with their children child or children do i i see how you know obviously my peers interact with their parents and it's so vastly different my parents almost they don't resent it but they can't quite get over how different it is for me to be living the life that i am living now and i don't think it's just a generation gap and i don't think it's just a um an age gap i do think it's got a lot to do with the fact that i'm literally thinking an entirely different language to them right because it creates these layers exactly you know i joke to friends of mine when they change their hair drastically mm. and their parents don't like it and i say well your parents won't like anything you do with your appearance that makes you look less like you did when you were a kid. Exactly. Because they develop that kind of nostalgia about you as a, as a cute little kid. And then the, the more you grow, it's something they have to adapt to. And you've got that that happens with all families combined with the language and the cultural changes so like you said there your personality was developing as you grew up but also as you learned a whole new language so that you come across quite differently depending on what you're speaking exactly and I think that's something that a lot of people that only speak one language can struggle to wrap their head around that we equate so much of who someone is to to what degree we understand them yeah and so there are people that speak a language that I don't and I've no way of judging what they have to say is concise and powerful and insightful yeah unless we can communicate in a way so then if they have broken English I have to purposely try not to equate that somehow with with their, their intelligence, intelligence because exactly. of course it's not it's only their intelligence within that language yeah absolutely and I, I think a lot of people don't make that assumption because it's easy as a person like myself to only I speak a bit of French but I only really speak English yeah it's easy to just assume that everyone is interpretable via your own language yeah. because that's the only experience I know yeah no absolutely and so for you with your parents, it sounds like you really had an ability to to integrate really well in a way that they didn't. So was that something you were kind of conscious of when you were younger, that they maybe weren't as integrated as you were? I think that's always going to be the case with uh, whoever moves to a different country at an older age. I think there's never going to be that same degree of integration and never going to feel completely at home in the new new culture no matter how well they speak the language and I know I keep going back to the point that obviously it's all subjective some people might I don't know obviously I actually I can imagine myself going to a uh you know moving to a different country and you know later stage in life and actually feeling pretty at home there but I think for someone who has moved countries before that's going to be easier for me because of that whereas for them it was the first move and they actually lived under communism in Poland back in the 70s. So their narrative was actually well coloured by that. They were cut off from the world for the longest time to a degree that other people might not even realise is possible. It's easy to take 
for granted democracy here you yeah. know it has all its flaws particularly with where we are politically right now yeah. but we could be so much worse off and there's so many people out there that that still live under communist regimes yeah, exactly. and and that's all they know yeah and it can be very isolating exactly so i think for them in particular it was difficult because of that and then they actually did russian at school instead of english so that's why moving here was so much more difficult because they had absolutely no no background in this language whatsoever. You're obviously going to find it more difficult to connect with people anyway. So, you know, having that extra barrier of, well, being older and struggling because you want to establish your family as well as establish yourself in a new country whilst sticking to your principles and still feeling like your own person, that's inevitably going to have some impact on you. Once you've acquired these new words, these tools that you can communicate with, to then develop this new sense of self around that and build it all up and feel like yourself again and then have it questioned incessantly and aggressively by, well, everyone around you in society all the time and have your entire self, sense of self questioned by everyone all the time, it's just debilitating. I do consider them to be microaggressions. When people constantly ask me why I sound the way I do, or where my accent's from, where where I'm from, because I want to say I want to say West Brom, but if I say West Brom, they'll say, "But where are you really from?" And uh, you know, uh, w- people don't realise how much of an impact it has because they don't realise that I get these questions daily and it's so annoying and they don't mean it. They don't mean it because they don't know, they just want to know, but they don't realise that actually I get asked this every single day and actually the, the most affirmative and the most affirming connections that I've ever made in my adult life have been with people who never really cared about that part of me. They met me, they didn't question what I sounded like. They didn't question where I was from. They just wanted to get to know me as a person. I have good accent days and I have bad accent days and it obviously makes me quite anxious when I do get those bad accent days, especially when I'm nervous, it just goes and like my entire tongue starts shaking and I get, <laughs> I get really nervous, obviously. So there's a lot of anxiety around that. But like I said, the best friendships that I've got are with people who never questioned me from or who I who I am. They, they've always just accepted me for who I am. And if I wanted to share with them that part of me, they were then willing to listen and just accept it. They never tried to tell me that I was something that that I wasn't what I felt I was. They never tried to right. tell me, no, you're not like you are just Polish or you are just British or you're not this or that they they very much just said you're Alex that's it that that's all that matters to us we don't care what you sound like we don't care where you're from you are just who you are and that's okay and And that's the power of a a kind of person first narrative that's right that you're human first and then all the other aspects of who you are come later Mm. and it's one of the most jarring things that you describe there to have your identity questioned, particularly as a young person, when you're still figuring out who you are. Yeah. Um, what many people may not realise is that something as simple as 
refusing to call a child by their name can be viewed as coercive control um, within a, a home. So if, for example, you have your parents are divorced and one parent chose your name and the other parent didn't, they may refuse to call you it. Mm. And that can be considered abuse just because of how toxic that can be to a young person's sense of self and who they are. The first thing we assimilate with is who our parents are and what our name is. That's right. And similarly, as we grow up, our culture and our personal identity is is so key. And not only is it key to us, but it's key to other people understanding us. Yeah. And so it's interesting for me coming from the other perspective, because whereas you have your identity questioned a lot, I have a lot of people assume that I'm English. Yeah. And I then actively make an effort mm-hmm. to drop little hints or mentions that I'm Irish into conversation so that people actually know my perspective on something. Because otherwise, I'm going to get some really weird looks when I start talking about, oh, family back home yeah. or talk about the English from a third party perspective. People won't know what I'm talking about. Equally just shows that we kind of need to on actually on both sides not just for me but for you of what you just mentioned it means that we both have to reaffirm who we are right on different levels obviously but it's essentially what we're doing you're reaffirming to people that you are not what you may come across as yeah because i sound like a newsreader (laughs) (laughs) uh, whereas what i'm doing is is uh, seeking constant affirmation for what i want to be and what i want people to perceive me as as opposed to making assumptions based on what i may sound like on any given day right exactly and ultimately it's far more nuanced particularly when you're like ourselves between two cultures in this way to a certain degree, you're both. Yeah. And that's absolutely. that's also one of the difficult that. things because yeah. not only are you forced to justify yourself, but you're also forced to choose. But actually, I mentioned the way I sound. That's as much a representation of living here as the kind of phrases and sort of Irish lilt that I can go into mm. sometimes, particularly when I'm around my family more. Yeah. And actually... For very few people, you're just one thing when it comes to culture. Yeah. I think that was my point. I don't have anything further no, for that, that sentence. That makes, <laughs> no, that makes sense. Um, uh, and do you know what it reminds me of? And I, I don't know why I keep bringing up references I don't actually like all that much. But um, do you have, have you guys ever seen How I Met Your Mother? Yeah. Do you, do you remember that episode where Robin go, goes full Canadian because she's sort of feeling she doesn't feel American enough, mm. but she doesn't. She then goes to Canada, and then she she finds that actually she doesn't actually feel Canadian either, um, and it's it's that constant struggle, isn't it? Right. That's it's so difficult, and it's something that it's taken me a long time to kind of get my head around. And just like yourself, I've had to defend my identity plenty. Yeah. And I'm kind of pretty. I think I come across as pretty tough and, you know, I'm very lucky in that regard that I don't mind standing up for myself. Yeah. And I have kind of tricks that I play, you know, like I'll mention if if someone wants to question my Irishness, then I'll say, okay, well, 
I'm Irish enough for citizenship and an Irish passport, so maybe you should take it up with the Irish Passport Authority. Mm. And I'll just completely deflect that because who am I to say I'm the authority on Irishness? I'm I'm merely a citizen, not a, a lawmaker. And people aren't ready for that kind of thing. But it is sad that I've had to learn tools in order to efficiently defend myself and shut down these kind of microaggressions you describe. Yeah, no, absolutely. And actually, I find it so difficult to talk about this kind of stuff with my friends because I I am conscious of the fact that I rehash this topic a lot Mm. of who I am and my sense of self and issues with my own personality and my self-esteem and my anxiety you know how all of those are related to my experience as a migrant slash wanting to feel at home and having that denied people around me who don't realize that they're denying my right to feel at home whether that be unwittingly or not so and actually it's just such a private dilemma people find it tiresome when i talk about it i find because it comes up so often in conversation because it's got it's so very closely tied up to my anxieties i find that obviously people do find it a little bit tiresome when i start talking about it especially with friends and such because it's difficult for them to understand just how much I struggle with my personality as a result of all this. And And it sounds like really, if you're having a bad accent day, as you describe it, that sets you up for a more anxious day by default. Yeah, absolutely. It is so nuanced and it certainly took me most of my young life to even get close to figuring out my identity. And even a conversation I've had recently with my parents was... They asked me, oh, do you think it would have been easier if we'd brought you up in Ireland? And it did kind of get me thinking because I'd never even imagined that as an option in hindsight. But I think it would have certainly made things simpler, but I don't think it would have made things kind of better. You know, we've ultimately got a brilliant life here and I'm well aware that my parents have working in the NHS, they have opportunities and they have a level of income they just wouldn't have achieved if they'd been a part of the Irish health system. Yeah, that it obviously had the impact it has had. But I think in a lot of ways, I also like to consider the fact that it's not my move here and it's not my, you know, forming of a new identity here that's had the most impact. It's more having it rejected by people around me. And it's so hard to hear that that has been your experience because so often it's the the process of moving, the process of integrating that is the toughest for many people. Mm. And that is unfortunately a certain part of the process. That's always going to be difficult. But what doesn't have to be the case is people rejecting you and your identity when you're integrated yeah that's the part that shouldn't be part of the the process and really the way you describe it it just sounds a bit lazy that it's easier for people to categorize you away based on very simple thinking than it is to actually think outside the box that there may be an identity outside of what they've experienced in their own personal life see i don't want to see it as lazy I, I don't, I don't, I really don't. Because, I mean, 
people have enough problems going on in themselves to not be willing to consider that other people might be struggling in ways that they can't even comprehend. I don't want to, I don't want to brand it as lazy, but I think mostly it's just not having the experience. I don't want to brand it as lazy. Because I don't Fair think enough. people. You're a lot less aggressive. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, I'm better. I try. I try not to be because I don't want people to resent me, and I don't want people to listen to me talking about this experience and think, "Oh, she's just someone else complaining about their identity." I I love my identity now. I've grown to love it, but I do still get aggravated, and I'm trying to make the con the you know the conscious effort to not yeah to um, rise when, above it to rise above it. Yeah, exactly. I'm aware that people don't always have these prejudices in mind when they ask me about my accent. I know that for some people it is genuine curiosity and they just they do just want to ask a question, which is fine. Um I think the only reason that I sort of react is because of the amount of people that I've had to deal with who were quite aggressive in my approach towards me as an immigrant. I think that's why I'm a little bit apprehensive. That is such an interesting point because even within that, it can vary from person to person. So for me, I quite like talking about my identity, but then I think in many ways it's quite, like you've said, subjective. It's situational mm. that I feel so lucky to live in Birmingham where it's so diverse. Mm. And for me, it's no coincidence that most of my friends here are second generation something. So I find that I tend to have a lot more in common with someone, let's say, from the Caribbean, so far away from Ireland, yeah. compared to someone that's that's not had that experience uh, being between two cultures. So for me, I found that really helpful in kind of finding my tribe, yeah. that it's not been a case of trying to fit in with being Irish or being British, but more a case of actually identifying with learning where you fit within a culture that isn't where your family are from. Yeah, I get that. So for me, I found that really powerful. Makes sense. And actually, now that you've mentioned it, I, in a lot of ways, well, in a lot of situations, I do actually find that I relish talking about my identity as well. Mm -hmm. um, as soon as I start feeling comfortable enough with someone, um, in a way that they allow me to just come out with whatever I want to come out with, I do actually find it so much easier to talk about both sides of me as opposed to just being really defensive about an adamant that I am just the one thing that I want to be perceived as. Right. Yeah, so I do actually find that I like talking about, say, the fact that I know all these languages and the fact that I uh, I can talk about how my identity builds up around them and how cool it is. You know that people can be accepting of that and you know that they're not just going to kind of see you in a superficial way and just ask you questions that everyone else asks you. And right. they actually want to see deeper into what you've become as a person as a result of all these experiences that's when it gets interesting and that's when actually those conversations are, are really cool to have yeah and you get to cover potentially new ground there exactly. because it's such a, a nuanced conversation but it's bottomless <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the key to it really is that understanding yeah that willingness to sort of look outside of the binary of being from one place or other and I tend to find I can spot that quite yeah. easily who Absolutely. may or may not get it and 
I'm sure this is something you have as well. There's, there can be this pressure when you know someone is not going to get it to simplify your life yeah. and to create the simplest narrative of who you are you possibly can. And it's reductive, it's it's less honest. Yeah, and it, in a way it's cheating yourself out of that wealth of you that you have to offer <laughs> so that you can kind of defy their expectations of you so that you can affirm to them that actually you are this one thing that they don't expect you to Mm -hmm. be because they think they know you as this other thing. So you want to be seen as the opposite to them. Yeah, I I find I do that. Sorry, floundering for words there. No, I get what you mean. And sometimes I find myself preempting people's stereotypes. Yes, absolutely. That's a really good way to phrase that. Thank you. (laughs) Just a bit like, oh, I don't really know how to put that. But yes, that's exactly what I No worries, that's my job. (laughs) And luckily I have, you know, fun quirks of who I am that are quite useful in that. Like I, you know, I don't drink and that was part of a bigger decision growing up. Yeah. And um alcoholism in Irish communities and even within my own family was a factor in that it actually wasn't the main factor but it was a factor and so I quite enjoy coming across those things where people have stereotypes and I don't fit them and then sometimes it takes doing that a few times Mm. and then they start really seeing you yeah because they're not interpreting you via your their assumptions they're actually learning organically who you are yeah and it's funny you should mention that example as well because I, I do the exact same thing with with actually particularly with alcohol I very much make a point of never ever drinking vodka and well a because I don't like it and b because um well I don't want to conform to that stereotype so when people uh, greet me with oh yeah so you're Polish or like you must love vodka and I'm like actually I really don't <laughs> right and and the point here is not to say that these conversations are easy you yeah. know there's there's no easy way to have them better but just a little bit of mindfulness can yes. can make such a difference so one tool I use quite a lot is just far more open-ended questions because I feel a certain responsibility having been misunderstood in my identity plenty of times to try and be more understanding of others yeah and so you know if someone says oh, I'm from India, moved over when I was such and such an age, I'll be like, how did you find that? You know, you don't need to jump on a, oh, yeah, India, I like curry. Like, you don't need to just jump to the first (laughs) thing you can think of, which many people do, Do, you know. I only use that example because I've heard it out of other people's mouths. (laughs) But actually, you're far safer just going with something open-ended. And then that's where you find the similarities. Absolutely. Because um, it then opens up the conversation that will actually let them show you who they are as opposed to jump into a stereotype. Yeah, because yeah. so much of it is universal. And there are certain stereotypes of the immigrant experience which do hold some accuracy, like family pressure oh, to yeah, succeed, yeah. you know, because your family's worked so hard to put you in the position you're in. And so the, there is a, a natural pressure there to make the most of it. Yeah. In the same way they want to make a most, the most of them having set up a new life for themselves. Yeah. And actually, as much as that's a part of that experience, family pressure is a part of the human experience. There's little things that we all have in common. That are, yeah, no, precisely. 
I feel like I phrased that a little bit badly, but No, anyway. you didn't at all. Um, <laughs> You've been so eloquent. I feel like I've been so nervous that all of my ideas that I thought I had that I was going to, you know, dish up to you in the most eloquent manner of <laughs> But, but that's what it's like, you know, and it, what you're coming up with instead is what comes to mind, and that's organic and honest. I A big part of me making sense on the podcast is really practice Uh, off air i mentioned i think to you earlier that i find it difficult to listen to old podcast episodes just because i know how much i've developed my interview skills even through this process so to begin wrapping up you've talked a lot about your experience coming to terms with your identity and how people have challenged that and that's been so difficult for you where are you with that now is that something that's got easier over time Yes and no. I think much like all aspects of mental health, it kind of goes up and down. It very much oscillates between me being okay with everything and just having a decent day and not feeling like foreign (laughs) and then also having days where I feel that I don't belong anywhere. And I think that's as much part of my experience at as, as as anyone else's um, on this planet, I don't think it's particularly it's, to do with it's nationality not just so much as exactly. I think it's just human condition, isn't it? <laughs> so right, because we, just as much as we can feel out of place in certain scenarios, so can someone with a strong regional accent from here. You know, they may feel that going to a different area of the UK, they're not going to fit in. Exactly, And so I think if you can understand that and that a lot of these issues are more universal, you'll find that you have a lot more in common with each person than you might think. We're all human, who'd have thought? (laughs) (laughs) And so in terms of you like figuring out your identity and that tying in so closely with your mental health and specifically your anxiety, Mm. how have you learnt to to cope with that better? (laughs) I think, as we talked about before, uh, just give people the benefit of the doubt Mm -hmm. and try and not overly focus on the fact that they might have some kind of prejudice against me and just bear in mind that actually they probably just want to ask a few questions and that's okay. And even if, you know, there are questions that I've had before that I don't really yet know the answer to in a way that will make me feel confident in myself I'll just answer them and let write it out just kind of keep going and focusing on keep calm and carry on yeah well well, there you go yeah well it's something that's so universal for anxiety isn't it your brain going to that worst case scenario (laughs) and it sounds like that's really formed a lot of how you react to people and their Mm. questions about your identity that you're going to assume they're going to have an aggression or a certain choice few things to say about it even if they don't and it's about sort of steadying your mind a little bit more that that could happen but equally they could be absolutely fine yeah you never know they might recognize your accent and then you can have a whole discussion about being british polish like yeah and i mean it does change i've i've on on sort of good days i don't get any questions and no one can even tell on bad days or when i'm feeling nervous people 
don't ever really guess Polish. I guess all sorts of things. I've had South African before. Wow. <laughs> I've had everything from American through to Canadian, through to South America, so through to um, South African. I've had all sorts. Yeah. It all depends on the day. I've and never that's... actually specifically had Polish. That's so interesting. I've, I've had like, I've had Scandinavian. It has a lot to do with tiredness as well. But it's that kind of vicious circle, isn't it? That you're tired and therefore that affects how you sound and how you sound affects your anxiety about how people are going to interpret (laughs) you. And it all just starts cycling around. And as much as you can, it's really helpful, of course, to try and slow that down. Yeah. And it sounds like you've learned a lot about how... To this, manage my responses more than anything, I think. Yeah, Definitely and how an much mind. of a factor this is in your mental health, but equally how learning more about it and honestly just going through these conversations with people, it builds up a kind of practice. Yeah. Uh, so we'll wrap up there yeah. then. The only other thing I wanted to mention, because you said it earlier about people guessing where you're from, would you agree that we don't need anyone to try and guess where we're from as a general disclaimer? No, let's not. not. (laughs) I think my, my dad loves to do it with Irish accents. He'll say, Oh, what, what side of this place are you from? And people love that when he can guess right down to like Mm. regionally. But if you're any less accurate than that, I think it's just generally easier to steer clear and instead open up the conversation for that person to take control of their own narrative yes. <laughs> and put it across how they'd like to rather than having to fulfil your more linear, closed questions. Yes, absolutely. All right. <laughs> no worries. So we'll wrap up there. Thank you so much for chatting today. It's been lovely. Thank you for chatting with me. <laughs> Thank you for listening. For a list of our recommended resources, visit mentalpodcast.co.uk. And remember, we are in no way a substitute for qualified counselling or other mental health support. Our show is edited and produced by the brilliant Pete Murta with licensed music by NetSky. Links in the description. Speak to you next Thursday, and remember, you are enough.